Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 20, verse 15. There is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. This section of Proverbs has been teaching us about wisdom and the acquisition, nature, and use of wealth. We learned about poverty, poverty, and sleep two weeks ago. Last week we looked at buyers and sellers and their attitudes about money. And this week, we see that wealth exists, and it has a type of glory, but wisdom surpasses it. The lips of knowledge are more valuable than wealth. Wisdom surpasses wealth because wisdom understands wealth. It comprehends that money is a substance. It's a created thing, and it's a gift from God, and money is a tool and God judges how we use it. With wealth, you can buy luxuries, but with wisdom, you can acquire true riches. Wisdom is the fear of God, and the lips of knowledge is wisdom applied. Gold and rubies are out there, but God gives gifts. Solomon wrote this proverb, and he had both wisdom and wealth. But God gave him the wealth because his heart was right before God. When God offered his heart's desire, Solomon asked for wisdom. So God promised to give him wisdom, but also wealth and long life because of his wisdom. This is much like what we read in the New Testament. Jesus said that we shouldn't worry about the things that wealth can give us, what we should eat or drink or wear. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Knowing this is wisdom. Living this is a precious jewel. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so please kneel if you're able. So far in Acts, the Lord ascended, the apostles received the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 were converted at Pentecost. The next thing we saw is that Peter and John heal a lame man. And last week they were arrested by the chief priests and Sadducees for preaching the resurrection from the dead. Nonetheless, the size of the church continues to grow, and it grows to about 5,000 men. And today we get to see what happened when the Jews put the gospel on trial. First, we see that the court that the gospel stands before is no less than the Jewish Sanhedrin. Verses 5 5 through 7 of Acts 4. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish court in the land. 
The high priest was the president of the court. And the rest of the Sanhedrin was composed of priests and scribes and elders from the other tribes of, of, of Israel. The scribes, because of their specialty in the law and the copying of the law and their expertise in the law, were essentially lawyers. Altogether, there were 72 seats on the Sanhedrin. It was a very impressive court. And when they were in session, they sat in a large semicircle. And while the accused were placed right in the middle of the circle, and they were questioned, as the text says, when they'd set them in their midst. Because Israel was a theocracy and was ruled by the Mosaic law, especially while their civil law was mitigated by the Roman law, they didn't have an Israelite king for their civil government. So, so Israel was technically a theocracy. God was the, the, the standard. The Mosaic law was their law. And because of that, this court, the court of the elders of Israel, was the highest court in Jewish society. So this was exactly the right place for the gospel to be tried. If Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Messiah of the Jewish scriptures, then here is the place for that to be proclaimed. Here is where Jesus needs to be proclaimed as Messiah. Now, Annas here is called the high priest. And while the gospel accounts tell us that Caiaphas was the high priest, and Annas was his father-in-law. And Luke himself tells us at the beginning of his gospel that they're both high priests. And the truth of the matter is that it's, it's, the issue is a little complicated. The Old Testament prescribed one high priest at a time. You can't have two high priests at once. And it wasn't a rapidly changing position. It's not like it went from one high priest to the next, to the next, to the next. It was, it was, it was a, you, were, you held the position for life. Annas had indeed been the high priest. But the Romans, for their own interests, had de de uh, taken his position and given it to Caiaphas, contrary to the Old Testament law. We also know from history that five of Annas's sons also held the office of high priest subsequent to Caiaphas. Which is partly why in, in the text we read that Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And, and it's because the family of the high priest, it, it, the, the high priest uh, position was handed down generationally. It was, it was handed down within families. The high priest was supposed to be from the line of Aaron. And that was changed to the line, the line of Zadok and Abiathar while, uh, when David was king. And, uh, and here we have the existing high priests, and they, they, they had inherited it from the Hasmonean dynasty. But uh, so, so Caiaphas and Annas are the high priests. But the end result was that certain factions considered Caiaphas to be the high priest, because that's who the Romans said was in charge. And more conservative ones considered Annas to be the high priest because he was prior to Caiaphas. But all in all, it, it really doesn't matter that much since they were all sitting here in judgment on the gospel and Peter and John. Because they were all here, all the people who had a claim to the position of sitting in Moses' seat and sitting in Abraham's seat 
are sitting here judging Peter and John in the gospel, there's no room for the Jews as a nation to say that they weren't given fair or adequate notice or warning concerning the ascendancy, the rising of Jesus Christ, or his power on earth. And next is a quick note about this trial in particular. This trial was not like Jesus' trial. Jesus had been tried in secret, arrested in the dark, tried in the night, and delivered to the the Roman authorities in the wee hours of the morning. As soon as it was light, they brought Jesus to Pilate. This was because the leaders of the people feared the people, and the crowds loved Jesus. He healed them, he gave them bread, and they had praised him when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So the leaders hid their deeds concerning Jesus because they wanted to be able to eliminate the threat of Jesus without distancing the crowds. They also feared Jesus because he answered them roundly and completely whenever they challenged him, whenever they tried to trick him or confound him. He always pointed to their dark motives and their hypocrisy. In in opposition to Jesus' trial, where it was done in the dark, this trial was public. It was open. And it was meant to be intimidating to the apostles. These were the leaders of the Jews. They were theologians and lifelong scholars in the Old Testament law. They were seeking to quash what remained of the followers of Jesus. They thought they, 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 they cut off the, the head of the snake and now it's time just to crush the body. They were thinking Peter and John here are simply fishermen. And that is what they were. They were simply fishermen. And so they set them up in the midst of this grand court with 70 Jew judges looking down upon them. They were fully intent of ridding themselves of what must have seemed to them as an awfully persistent deviation from what they considered to be true Judaism. Verse 7, And when they set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? At first look, at the outset, this seems to be like an innocent enough question. By what power, by what name have you done this? But there's a certain element of bite to the Sanhedrin's charge. The Old Testament had tasked the leaders, the elders of Israel, the Israelites, to test prophets. It was the job of the Israelites to test prophets. And false prophets received the death penalty. There were two tests that were commanded in Deuteronomy for prophets. The first was whether their prophecy came true or not. If they make a prophecy and it doesn't come true, they they deserved the death penalty, whether they received it or not. And there was no disputing whether Peter and John's power was real. The lame man stood right there with them. Neither was there any disputing whether Jesus' power was real. He healed. He rose from the dead. He raised other people from the dead. But the second test was if the prophet called men to another god. If the prophet called men to another god other than Jehovah, the covenant god of Israel. And the Old Testament prescribes that if men call the Israelites to follow another god, it doesn't matter if 
their, their prophecies come true, they're preaching a false god. And if they call anyone to another god other than Jehovah, it was on the basis of this second test that the Sanhedrin had falsely convicted Jesus Christ and sentenced him to death. They asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And he said, I am. And they falsely, they denied that he was. They falsely accused him of calling people to another God because they refused to believe that he was their Messiah. He was God in the flesh. And so they killed him. And here they're seeking to stick the same label on Peter and John. By what power, what name have you done this? means that they expect Peter and John to claim a false god. They're trying to pin a capital offense upon them. Now let's look at Peter's apology. And by apology, I do not mean that Peter was sorry for what he had done. Not in the least. On the contrary, I use the term apology in the Greek sense, like the word apologetics. The Greek word is apologia, and an apologia is a defense. It's an argument defending the truth of your position or your actions. The first thing we notice about Peter's defense is that he's not alone, but he's led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Jesus had commanded in the Gospels not to worry about what to say to courts and governors and kings when they were put on trial. He said, you will be put on trial. You will be dragged into the courts. You will be placed before kings. He said, don't worry about what to say because the Holy Spirit will guide you as what to say. And here Jesus makes good on that promise. And here's what Peter said through the Holy Spirit. He speaks boldly. And he first draws attention to the ludicrous nature of this trial. Here's what he says. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? If we are being judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? He's, he's, he's drawing the premise out of what's actually going on here. Peter points to the true nature of the pettiness of this leadership. They are the rulers of the people. They are the elders of Israel. And it's shameful that they are trying Peter and John for doing a good deed. They're judging them for doing a good deed. And this was evident in their accusation. By what power or by what name have you done this? What, something has been done. A good thing has happened. A lame man is walking. But they're being judged for this. In a sane world, Peter and John would have been praised rather than incarcerated. The same questions should have been asked. But not to prisoners on trial, but to prophets with power honored and respected as such. Since that is not the case, Peter's sarcasm and his incredulity are quite appropriate. Nonetheless, Peter's happy of the opportunity to witness Jesus Christ before these men. And he does so without holding back. Verses 10 to 13, he speaks boldly. 
Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, Peter's gospel, as the gospel always does, is driven by an accusation against his audience. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, the stone rejected by you builders, this is the power by which this man stands. He is the chief cornerstone. Moreover, Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his, the Holy Spirit's grace, has entirely sidestepped the aim of the Sanhedrin. Because he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 118, in fact. To explain the miracle and God's power, he cannot be held as drawing men to another God. They cannot condemn Peter and John on that basis. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118. This has been prophesied in the Old Testament. And by the way, if you remember from last week, his sermon to the crowds emphasized the scriptures and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the prophets. Peter and John were absolutely not calling anybody to follow anything other than what they were supposed to be doing from the very get-go, from the very beginning, from the time of Moses. Follow God. And this is what God is showing him. This is a new way of following him. Jesus Christ is a Messiah. Peter's defense here is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Because God raised him from the dead, Jesus' power is undeniable. And God has made his authority absolute. Jesus had told the apostles, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Faith in Jesus Christ is exclusive. There is no room for salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven which has salvation in it. The Sanhedrin could not turn this into a he said, she said sort of thing. Like relativism in our culture. Well, that's okay for you, but this is what it is for me. And you have to accept that too. The Sanhedrin couldn't say that. This wasn't like the theoretical disputes between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees say, yes, there is life after death. Yes, there is resurrection. Yes, there are angels. The Sadducees, no, there's not life after death. No, there's not resurrection. No, they're not angels. It's all in theory. But this is not like that, because here was a proclamation of fact, backed by proof of power. The lame man was looking them right back in the eyes. And he was standing there on his own two feet. Two feet made whole by Jesus Christ. And this particular aspect of Christianity continues to draw a line in the sand between Christianity and every other religion. 
Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And Christians must refuse to allow any other God or person or state or court or ideology or philosophy to be granted a seat on par with him. This leaves the court with a great conundrum. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Peter's boldness caught this court completely off guard. They marveled. Whoa, didn't expect that. Talking to Peter was just like what they had experienced when they talked with Jesus. And they didn't like that either. These men were not unfamiliar with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Pentecost had only recently occurred, and Pentecost was only 50 days from the Passover at which Jesus was murdered. And in the narrative of that occurrence, the crucifixion, we see clearly that these very men were directly and personally involved in his crucifixion. In Luke 22, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, right after he healed the high priest's servant's ear, we read this. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then in Luke 22, right after Peter denies Jesus three times, we see Jesus before the Sanhedrin, this very court at the end of Luke 22. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. Here we see that Jesus had predicted that they would see his power. And that his death would be a coronation. Only 50 plus days prior to Peter and John's trial, these men had set a guard at Jesus' tomb. And had heard the soldiers report that Jesus had risen. Moreover, they must have heard rumors of his appearances and the growth of the church. All of which happened very publicly. And now they see Jesus' power firsthand. Verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. All this goes to show that you cannot have the upper hand when you're arguing with the Holy Spirit. So... The Sanhedrin being between a rock and a hard place, they have a conference and they make a decision. They tell the accused to leave and they have a little, a little powwow. Verses 15 to 18. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, 
What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. That from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Here we see the hardness of their hearts. This truly was an adulterous and perverse generation. Falsely accusing Peter and John and hearing the apostles' defense and proclamation, seeing the evidence of their words, they still seek to block the gospel and they rage against God, threatening his ambassadors. What shall we do to these men? we got to do something. We've got to stop them. They weren't very smart about it, though. They, they tell them to stop speaking, and it's such a limp-wristed command. And here's the apostles' answer. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. The simplicity and completeness of this answer is compelling. There's no good counter to this line of reasoning. Peter and John basically said that nobody and nothing was going to take their focus off of Jesus or God. God is God and there is no higher court of appeal. This court had usurped God's authority. They thought that they had a monopoly on the proclamation of God's work in the world. They were the priests and the high priest. They were the guardians of the temple and the Torah. By golly, if anybody was going to tell anybody else what God said, in their minds it was going to them who was going to be the te- doing the telling. For they sat in Abraham's seat. What they refused to recognize was that God speaks in the scriptures and he fulfilled the scriptures in their very presence. They refused to hear the gospel. So they had eyes and did not see. They heard and they did not understand. They rejected God's chief cornerstone. And in this refusal and rejection, they fulfilled the very scriptures which they claimed to be God's mouthpiece of. Peter and John, on the other hand, won up the Sanhedrin. They put them on trial. They make rightness in the sight of God the basis upon which to judge. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Because God is absolute and ultimate, there is no higher court. Men can do no better than to listen to him. And this means that even if the Jewish Sanhedrin, the highest court of the chosen people, puts themselves at odds with God, the answer is still a no-brainer. God's sovereign. You're not. You are mere men. Ultimate truth and ultimate reality are ultimate. What Peter and John's answer is, is that God is God, and we are his witnesses. 
And we can't do anything other than speak what God reveals to us to be absolutely true. The things we've seen and heard. Peter and John lived in the presence of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw him after the resurrection, when he was risen in glory. They watched him float up into the clouds. And then we have a little short epilogue to what happened there, verses 21 and 22. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. In the epilogue, we see that Peter and John are further threatened, but they're set free because the Sanhedrins are slaves to their fears. They didn't fear God. They feared the people. And the people loved the gospel. The people loved deliverance. The people loved miracles. Here we see the stark dichotomy between Christianity and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin feared the people. Their highest aim was to be praised and held in high regard and esteem by the people. Their greatest fear was to be deposed and ridiculed. They confused God's covenant with a moral code. And the fruit of their system was death. They murdered our Lord. And they bound the people with unbearable burdens. By contrast, Christians fear God. And because of this, there's nothing else to fear. Even in death, there is resurrection. God vindicates his servants and he fights on their behalf. By his spirit, he confounds their enemies. And by his grace, he delivers his people. The result of faith is life and deliverance, just like the lame man who was set free from his burden. The end result of the gospel on trial is that God is glorified. God is glorified by the people. The miracle is put on a national stage. The enemies of God are called out for who they are and what they do and how they operate. And God's witnesses are blessed by an opportunity to further proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and glorified. The gospel is power, and God is great. Praise be to the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. especially in death. Jesus' cross is a pattern for Christian life. In Jesus, when we are purified by daily death and resurrection, we are given his life, resurrection life. In our humility, God is glorified and we are blessed. Like John the Baptist, each of us must learn to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. The way that happens is we must lay down our lives sacrificially for our Lord. That means that we must discern what he is calling us to do 
But when we do that, we must give ourselves over to him. If you are a husband and father, that means that you must die to yourself, sacrifice your time for your wife and children, and give your money for their benefit. Give your heart to Jesus so that he might teach you to lead them spiritually. Give your focus to your labor that you might provide well. If you are a wife and mother, you must give of yourself. Whether that's being cheerful and respectful when it's hard, or it's changing diapers, teaching, cooking, cleaning, or taxiing kids to and from all kinds of activities. If you are a child, you must apply yourself to your responsibilities. Honor your parents, obey them, and work hard. If you are single, invest yourself in community and build relationships. Don't be selfish and stretch yourself for others. No matter who you are or where you are, you are called to live for the Lord because he died for you. So die to yourself and be alive to him, investing yourself in his service. But the glorious result of this done well is overwhelming blessing and richness of life. Come now to his table and be fed by his body, that you may be strengthened to do his work. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.